Hello and welcome back to the Wizard Staff. I'm your host Guy, and I'm Blake. And we are two drunk novices who like to talk about EDH. We drink and swear, so you've been warned. Please drink responsibly when you're talking about children's card games. Now, I'm sure that you've all been in a situation where, like this, where you have someone that you want to bring in to, you know, your Friday night magics, your Thursday night magics, whatever it may be, but they don't know diddly squat about magic. So, like, what are you going to do? How are you going to bring them in? Like, is what do you do? Like, it's kind of a hard thing to, like, grasp when you're just, like, starting out in trading card games in general. Well, today, we have a very special guest, my friend Gio here, who, you know, started Magic recently, and we're going to kind of talk with him and, you know, kind of go through some of those processes and, like, what are some of the best tips for getting someone into Magic? So, Gio, say hello. Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Gio. I have been playing since the beginning of this year, you know, before the world got a little weird with COVID. <laughs> you came out at a great time. Yeah, uh, I have about eight months of experience, uh, approximately. Uh, and, you know, still learning every day. Awesome. Um, yeah, it is kind of weird that you came in January and then, like, all of this happened because I'm sure that didn't, like, make things easier because, you know, then we had to, like, socially distance ourselves and, you know, you can't play as many games as you can now. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty unfortunate, you know, um, especially when COVID, like, first started and there was a lot of lockdowns, then, um, we had to sort of break our, our playgroup cycle and it was a weird period, um, but luckily, you know, you find a way around it. We, we ended up finding uh, untapped.in, which is a website that allows you to play online for free and use any card. So it was really helpful for trying to like uh, at least maintain uh, uh, the habit of getting together and, and playing, even like testing decks for for future use, you know, so that we can end up using it in person when we eventually went back to um, gathering again. For sure, for sure. All right, so you've been playing for about eight months now. It's August. Do you have a favorite card that you've come across so far? I don't know about favorite card, but as of late, I've had some pretty fun moments of my Rite of Replication that I've been using. So for those of you that don't know, Rite of Replication Sorcery Spell, where you uh, copy a target creature, and if you kick it um, by paying five extra mana, then you can copy five times. Obviously, you can't use it on a legendary creature because then they'll just fizzle out, right? But if you use it, there's, there's a lot of good creatures out there with some stupid effects that uh, that will give you some interesting results. For sure. Uh, I think Blake and I have always, like, you know, our dream has been to write a replication on a, a Blightsteel Colossus <laughs> with six of them. Oh, yeah. man. You know? That's good. Pick one up now, just because, like, Double Master is reprinted in, so yeah. what's your favorite big boy? The, the biggest thing that I've done is um, I've used Rite of Replication on this one card. I, I it's, Some some cards I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but this is one card where when this creature attacks, um, target player or defending player uh, basically cuts their deck in half. So I replicated that five times, and I brought my opponent down to one card. Um... Nice. But it's with like that one card, follower. he won the game. Yeah, it's please follow. That one card, he won oh, the yeah, game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was it's so fish. sad. Yeah. Awesome. All right. And, you know, this is a drinking podcast. What's your favorite kind of drink to have? Honestly, you know, a lot of people judge me when I say that my favorite drink is Four Loco Fruit Punch. Um, <laughs> yeah, see, it's because... A lot of people have these The memories. stigma. Yeah, it's a stigma. A lot of people have these, uh, I don't know, whether it's bad memories, something of, of drinking it, and then just getting totally faded immediately. 
and but like when you think about it for the value it's so efficient you know you get you get that 12 percent alcohol they they took out a lot of the energy drink components so it's not the one that they originally do so you know it tastes a little different i personally have a very sugary palate for things so me drinking that it, it's 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 a little more bearable than you know me drinking a beer and it, you know it'll get me you know just as messed up if that you know so yeah, that's, that's what I've been going with. To, right now, though, I'm drinking a uh, white mango white claw, um, and I'm sure that's popular enough. You know, that also gets me a little bit of a little bit of side eyes here and there, but you know, whatever. I'm proud. A little bit of white girl wasted. Yeah, a little bit of white girl wasted. <laughs> awesome, Blake. What are you drinking? Just before we continue. I am drinking an Icicle Brewing Company Boot Jack IPA. It's from Leavenworth, Washington. And it's actually weird. I've had numerous drinks on this podcast from Leavenworth, Washington. So now I'm just like, man, maybe I should really just go back there as an adult because I've been there tons as a child, but like I couldn't drink as a kid. So like now I might actually enjoy it even more. I have three drinks with me right here. Not all alcoholic. (laughs) Aw, come on. Uh, I have my coffee my water and then my sea quench ale session sour from dogfish head uh, it's been one of my favorites recently it was a, i had a uh, early not an early i had a late wake up so yeah i need the coffee and the water to like sustain me while i drink alcohol through this uh podcast today all right so enough about that let's kind of like dive right in so you're starting a new game, Geo. Before playing Magic, uh, did you play a card game beforehand? If, which one? If not, uh, what about Magic kind of drew you in instead? So, uh, in my senior year of high school, I had a little bit of a three to four month period where I got into playing Pokemon the card game. It was a, a little bit of fun for a short amount of time, but it got kind of old, and I wasn't really a fan of system that they use for some reason like the mana and you know the, the energy and, and how it played out i remember exactly why but i didn't end up continuing to play it was like too many coin flips and, and too many you know this and that 50 50s that i wasn't a fan of i have played hearthstone which is not exactly a physical card game more of an online card game and i played that for a solid month straight like literally every day um so that was that was a good one, I'd say. That one I was totally fine with. Um, but you know, what ended up drawing me in about magic is uh, how many cards and how many effects there are. There's there's so many little dumb things that you can do in this game that that some of them are kinda of funny, some of them are kinda of, you know, busted, broken and then, and it's it's just it's the diversity in cards that uh, drew me into the game. Um, like literally anything you can you can kill your own stuff and get a benefit out of it you can bounce your own stuff off the board bring it back and and you know like yesterday I was playing against somebody that used a uh, uh, Thassa where you uh, bounce your stuff off the board and then it comes back in your end step and then you reactivate that stuff like there's there's just so many um, effects and triggers that you can do and it really makes the game challenging strategic and you know at its core fun yeah i think there's about twenty thousand individual cards in magic last i checked over and so did you like not really find that level of uniqueness in like pokemon and hearthstone is that like overall like one of the major factors you think that kind of pulled you to mg mtg i'd say pokemon yes lack of those factors Hearthstone there was a little more you know especially now they have like Discover and and a bunch of stuff at the time they didn't have Discover you know Discover wasn't a thing it wasn't a mechanic so uh yeah I mean it I'd say that that was definitely bad and when you played Magic uh sorry when you played Pokemon did you have like a friend group system for like support where you guys would play with each other or was it kind of more just oh i see you have some pokemon cards i have some pokemon cards uh let's 
do a battle here, or you know how like in Magic we have our playgroup. Did you also have like a playgroup for Pokemon that could like keep you going? Honestly, the I would, I would say no. Our playgroup was limited to what we did at lunchtime because we were in high school, you know, um, and it was so it was like we I didn't have my own deck. I didn't own my own deck. I used their cards. Oh, you borrowed someone else's? Yes, I borrowed their decks because they taught me how to play against my will, <laughs> so to speak. And I didn't own my own cards. I didn't want to go buy cards because I didn't. I think in actuality, I didn't want to commit to the game because I was already unsure going into the game. So I borrowed their decks every time at lunch, and then we would play. And I took so many L's, took a W here and there, you know. But uh, in the end, it just wasn't for me. The play group, we literally, you know, just played every other lunch cycle, I guess. And eventually, I ended up stop to stop playing. And then, you know, following that, like a domino effect, one other person stopped playing, and then we just dropped. And then, honestly, we all just moved to Pokemon on, uh, you know, Pokemon the game on like the 3DS and stuff. And that was a little different. But for, as for the physical card game, it for us, it sort of just dropped off this year. I'm glad that you brought up that point where, you know, you used um, other people's cards. Because I have listened to Mark Rosewater explain, like, how he gets people into magic. And he always talks about, like, at the end of, like, the teaching session, he just gives them whatever cards that he taught them how to play. And that way they're able to, like, take it away with them. And it'll, like, keep their interest going. Whereas, you know, if you're always having to borrow... It, you don't really feel like you're invested in it as much, you know? That is true. That is true. But, you know, at, at current times, it can be very expensive to have your own decks, especially if you're just starting. That, yeah. Um, the market is, for some cards, as, as you guys know, the market's very random. You know, it, it, depending on the reprints, it, it raises, it drops. There's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of lack of opportunity for card. So, for new players going getting into this game and learning about the player market it is just insane so oftentimes borrowing decks might be the way to go i think when i started out i didn't borrow any decks i literally went to target and i bought a pre-con for 2019 i bought the adla palani pre-con deck and i just jumped into it because you know i had 40 dollars at the time so that was it for me but, you know a lot of people might not Blake, do you kind of want to give some of your perspectives transitioning? Because you and I both come from Yu-Gi-Oh! We, you know, we've often talked about how we would just play that during lunch, or like cross-country meets, or during class sometimes, you know? And we were very good students, <laughs> just the best. Um, but yeah, want to talk about kind of your transition, because I feel like, you know, we share some things, but also... We'll probably have a little different perspective. Sure. So, as you said, we transitioned from... We grew up with Yu-Gi-Oh! And I think having done that and transitioning to Magic, it's kind of like a double-edged sword in that I, I learned a lot of useful trading card game like mechanics and skills and concepts like card advantage and like the zones of the game and deck construction, you know, these abstract concepts but in some ways it also kind of held me back because I came in with certain preconceptions of how a particular card game worked like when I was trying to learn the mana system for the very first time I was just like not getting it I was like what do you mean I have to tap lands <laughs> what is this and then I also really struggled with certain facets of the gameplay like how not all creatures have like basically haste and vigilance and that creatures could tap sideways while being face up i was like what what is this it's not face down defense position what and i didn't really <laughs> like i also struggled with like the concept of oh i oh i'm in magic i can just attack my opponent directly without having to destroy their board what is this so i had some certain like things that held me back because I was still kind of stuck in the Yu-Gi-Oh mindset. But overall, I would say because I learned all those high-level abstract concepts early on while I was young, 
it overall was very beneficial for me. And I, it was a fairly seamless transition from one card game to the other. Yeah, I, I agree with that where, you know, the basic fundamentals of all the card games really do help when you go from one to another. I think the stuff that was like really tricky is just that the sequencing of like triggers, static abilities, like, you know, it wasn't until I learned what the stack was where I was able to then visually kind of like, you know, understand like what happens when you're like playing a car. Oh, come on, guy. You don't like chains. You don't no, like chains. I, you could, you, you, I bet you couldn't even explain chains to me, Blake. I don't have the time and patience for that. <laughs> okay. And if you don't know, chains is like the, I want to say equivalent in like you. It's basically the like, equivalent. Except I think you would go like bottom up instead of bottom down. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't even want to like really dive into it. Neither do I. Yeah. But okay. So, Geo, you know, starting out, you're playing EDH, you're given a hundred cards, and from my knowledge, this is like the largest deck size that at least is the minimum. What do you think of that? Like, you know, it, it's pretty big. I fell in love with it immediately, and I'll tell you why. Oh, wow. I don't like standing. <laughs> when I learned to play Magic... Standard is full of so much cheese that it made me sick. You lactose intolerant. I hate cheese too. <laughs> I hate cheese too. Um, and my friends told me about EDH Commander. And when they told me that all decks would have only one copy of each card and it's a hundred card deck, I was overjoyed. So with the hundred card deck, you have, and I, did, I just looked up the map. You have a 1.10% chance of drawing a single individual card in your deck. Aside from, and that's like without you having seven cards in your hand. So, you have a 1.10% chance of drawing that game-breaking, game-winning card that you have in your deck. That that single win con that will just throw the whole game side. So, that leaves tons of people with the opportunity to make so many plays as well as diversifies each game that you play. Since you have the 100 card deck. Each game, you might play different creatures, different spells. Because, personally, whenever we go through our games, I'd say we each run through maybe 30 cards max for our deck. Unless we're just you know, land drawing, land or Unless we're just drawing cards, drawing cards. But, we go through 30 to 40 cards per deck. So, that leaves at least half of the deck untouched. So, the next game that we play, we might encounter cards that we didn't the first time. And then our play is going to be a little different. The way that we operate. The way that we think about what other people can do. So the 100 card deck is really beautiful. And it's helpful to all players like new and old players. I'm glad that you have a very optimistic opinion about it. Because when Blake sent me the dragon deck. He bought me the dragon deck to like get me started. I was kind of like, do I have to play with all these cards? Like, <laughs> I really want to like take it down so I can like fit it in my hand reasonably well but I think that was just because you know in Yu-Gi-Oh it's just smarter to play with like the minimum deck size and that's like 40 cards versus 100 so it's like literally like 250% so yeah I didn't like holding my fingers out as much as that but like now i'm like yeah this is fine like it's it's easy so i've i've learned to embrace definitely it. takes some getting used to i want to add to that like a guy had the exact same problem when i went from Yu-Gi-Oh to magic like oh 40 cards oh now i'm holding 100 i gotta like spread my hands really wide and then if you sleeve it you're like oh god my hands and then if you double sleeve it you're just like all right i got a two-hand this bitch like <laughs> this is big and I mean, when we say you spread our hands really wide, we only mean like add in another inch or like inch and a half. Like it's not even like that physically laboring on us, you know? <laughs> Be honest with me. As Yu-Gi-Oh players, oh, did so you guys ever think, even remotely think about getting the, um, the like, what is it called? The armband that they use in the show where they have, they put the cards on it. <laughs> yeah, the dual, the dual disc. disc. You guys ever think about getting a dual disc? Not, not even, you know, it doesn't have to even be for play, just for the meme. No, I, d I never went that full weeb. 
When I was a child, yes, I had one. And oh my god, you did? I didn't notice. And I played in college, and I had another friend, Ethan, who has been on this podcast before. And we tried to play with the dual discs, but I mean, our arms were just like too big at that point. Where like, you know, we we kind of like held them, like the dual discs, like near our arms, but we couldn't like actually put it on. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it it was it was fun. Um, I can't imagine like you know trying to shove a hundred cards into the Yu-Gi-Oh dual disc now. Like that'd be impossible. All right, so Geo, what was one of the hardest parts about learning magic, uh, and what helped you overcome that challenge? Do you read or listen to any primers, podcasts other than ours that you find to, that you found to be very helpful on your journey? Um, so <clears throat> one of the hardest parts that I still struggle with on occasion, you know, because uh, there are so many cards that do so many different things, is learning interactions between cards. So it was kind of weird to learn that you have to take a lot of text literally in, in a lot of circumstances. And most of the times that I encounter a problem, my friends have taught me what to do or, you know, could Google search. But most of what I've learned, I've probably learned in person or through trial and error. <clears throat> so it's, it's a little weird, you know, um, having to look at all the permanents on your board and, 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 you know, make sure you remember every single one because a lot of times if you throw something in, it'll trigger something and it can be very easy to forget that. And then you lose out on a lot of opportunity, which has happened to me a lot. Mystic study triggers. <laughs> when I first uh, started, we would, my friends gave me a little bit of leeway, you know, and they would let me go back and do what I had to do. But now, since I'm more experienced, we have a rule where if you miss it, you miss it. It's gone. You know, the opportunity is gone. If, if you didn't draw your card or if you didn't put your trigger, your counter, whatever it, whatever it may be, right? You didn't flip the top, whatever it may be. It, it's done. You lost your chance. It's your fault for not keeping track of your own board. And we're moving on. That's obviously a little more strict, but I feel like it makes the gameplay a little better. But yeah, that's probably one of the hardest parts. Another hardest part is just dealing with cards that I'm not familiar with. I'll tell you, the first time I got Cyclonic Rifted, I wanted to flip the table. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> if you overload Cyclonic Rifted, man, it, it, it stings. Something about having my permanence bounced to my hand stings more than a board wipe of exiles and destruction. And uh, Blake's over there laughing because I know Blake would use it, but... It's, yeah. it's it's one of those things that um, might be a little hard to learn. Especially, like, imagine coming from a game like Pokemon and playing Magic, where in Magic you can destroy and, and exile and bounce stuff back to your hand, and, and there's so many little uh, keywords and interactions that you'll find on so many cards that's totally different than what you're used to, right? Stuff like that can be really challenging for new players. But if you have the will to learn, and if you have the the uh, mindset that you can eventually go from point A to B where you will know all this stuff and you'll be just like everyone else, then, I mean, it's worth it. As for the podcasts or any other media, mainly I listen to the Witcher Staff podcast. You know, to me, that's a very... I've I've listened to a lot of the segments on here and there's a lot of good opinion, especially the one where you had, um, recently you had Brayden on to talk about CEDH. I really enjoyed that. That gave a lot of insight, and, and even I even learned about a couple new cards, you know. So stuff like that, I really like what you guys do with the show. As for other media, I occasionally watch the uh, watch a Commander's Corner video here and there to learn about strategy for certain decks, and certain commanders. But beyond that, not really much. Um, I'm more of a in-person learner. Learn it yourself. Exactly. I'm more of a learner myself, and that's what I've done in in most cases with this game. And sometimes it's a little more tough than others, but you gotta sort of drag your feet through the mud to get to the other side. So it is what it is. For sure. Questions to follow up on that. So the first being triggers and, you know, when you have something enter the battlefield and, you know, you set off a bunch of stuff, 
do you, as someone who was learning at the beginning and that would happen, did you find it more helpful for you to say, if I miss that trigger, it's on me and I'm gonna, you know, just need to do better about remembering that? Or would you prefer that you, you know, let your opponents and friends say like, you know, you're new and you're learning, you know, I'll let you like go back if you miss that like a turn or two ago. It was never more than one turn after, but I, I when I was first starting, I was a little more satisfied with my friends saying, hey, um, you're supposed to do that at this time and you missed it. So let's do it now. I was way more uh, satisfied with that because I would have, especially if I'm if I'm going to be using this deck over a long span of time, I would need to remember these combos, these triggers. So that was extremely helpful. Nowadays, or like ha I said, like maybe halfway through my to my current experience, I was content with if I missed it, I got to do better. If I missed it, the opportunity is gone. You know what? If if I miss a chance to remove something or counter something that that changes the game, it's on me. You know, I have to pay more attention and I have to be more aware of the board. And that's just a skill that as a new player, you have to learn and develop to the best of your ability. So it's kind of one of those it is what it is type deals where I'm sort of just going to roll with it and take the punches. Okay. So I'll add on to this conversation, which is or it's more helpful when getting new players into the game if it's their friends who are getting them in. Like, you know, you cultivate a small playgroup and you're helping each other. Remember these triggers, remember these ETBs. Because once you start going to, say, a local game store or start playing online, you know, you're playing with strangers and strangers don't care about you as much. Like, they're not gonna, like, they're not gonna be as friendly and be like, oh yeah, you forgot that trigger. Like, some, some strangers are really nice, but on average, it's like it's more conducive if you get friends to like get you into the game because they're going to be more helpful and want to see you succeed in the long run. I agree. The other follow-up question that I had, and well, to kind of go back just another quick second, uh, it, that is a great, you know, use your friends as kind of like the stepping stones to get you to be a better player. Like for sure, um, I'm glad that you know we all can help each other out learning this game because it is quite difficult but the other question I was gonna have is you were talking about all the different zones like graveyard exile zone and that's kind of you know hard to grasp as a new player have you come to the point where you have kind of started thinking about like a graveyard as a another hand yet or do you know what I mean by that yeah um, I haven't because I don't run a lot of decks and cards that will let me manipulate my graveyard to use to my advantage I don't really run much black which you know black does a lot of that graveyard manipulation uh, I have thought about <clears throat> making more of a black oriented deck with which I can do that the only time I've ever done it is when I run Marin of uh, Clan Noctel, I think that's pretty much yeah. um, when I run when I run Marin, that's the only time that I've ever uh, considered my graveyard a resource. Um, but beyond that, I normally don't because it, if something's in there, it's in there. I, I've had my graveyard exiled when I use Marin. I've, I've had a, a lot of times where my cards are taken from my graveyard and my my graveyard exiled, but I don't get my own use out of it. So it's a little unfortunate, but I do, you know, I have realized that it can be a resource, just like your life total is a resource, right? Absolutely. Yeah, because your graveyard is a resource, and in some cases, even your opponent's hands are a resource. Looking at you, sent triplets. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely am I'm aware of that. Okay. I mean, that was a concept that I think, especially in Yu-Gi-Oh!, and I think Blake would probably agree with me, uh, you have like your hand, your extra deck, uh, your graveyard, and the banished zone. Which in Yu-Gi-Oh, it's actually really easy to like get stuff out of the banished zone, from what I remember. Yeah, that's a joke. It's like the banished zone is basically a second graveyard. <laughs> right. So you know, you just kind of you know move pieces around the board. Uh, so it's 
really easy to kind of like come around to the fact of like, oh, you have access to everything. Magic, you don't have an extra deck, and Magic, there's four or five cards that really allow you to pull stuff out from exile when they're exiled like permanently. You can exile cards to put them there and then like, you know, cast them like Praetor's Grasp, but typically they try to like say, uh, when this is exiled, it's exiled, so. And I appreciate that, yeah, because otherwise it's just a second graveyard and what's the point Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, have you acquired a lot of what you would, of what would be considered the fundamental staples of EDH, like Soul Ring, Cultivate, Command Tower, and were these recommended to you for pickup or after playing games? Were you able to figure out what those were after like observing and seeing like, oh, that card comes up or that card is very helpful? Uh, I have acquired a lot of them. You know, Soul Ring, for one, is one of those basic ones that you it's essential in almost every deck. It's crazy the value that you get from it. Especially if you get in your opening hand, and that's just one of those one of those things that'll really set you ahead. Cultivate Command Tower, all those cards. A lot of them were recommended to me. Some of them I found on my own through through play. I have played a little bit with people outside of my play group on Untap, and I've seen some cards that were pretty interesting there that might that I could you know I might be able to consider kind of fundamental. I haven't acquired any of the tutors, which uh, so many people seem to use in like every deck, but that's because they're so expensive. I know there's like one or two that's that's a little more affordable, but a lot of the really good ones with uh, small CMCs and stuff are very expensive. And, you know, it kind of sucks that they are, but you know you know the mark. But yeah, I'd say a lot of them were recommended to me by my, my play group. You know, I remember Guy, you were in the first game that I played. Um, you're part of the original play group that I played with, so you guys ended up talking to me a lot about like when you play something. This is one of those cards that would be helpful or be be useful to have in either this deck or, or every deck. So I'd say talk like that was very helpful to developing my uh, my skills as a player and my deck building because even like now I still struggle with deck building a little bit, but just having that little bit of knowledge and those recommendations. I know not everyone enjoys the facet of deck building, and I know some people can get a little bit snobbish about it. But, you know, some people just want to, like, sit down and play a game. They don't want to think about deck construction. And I don't think anyone should be held against that. Pre-cons are great. <laughs> just pick it up and play. How many decks have you built from 0 to 100, Geo? And what I mean by that is just, like, you started with nothing and then you had a deck. Like, how many decks have you fully constructed yourself? Um... So I have my Atla Polani deck, which was a pre-con, but at this point in time, I've replaced most of the cards with other cards. So I wouldn't say that's a 0 to 100, that's maybe like 20 to 100. Same thing, I have a, a Yannette Cryptic Sovereign, but that one, however, I, I'd say that's a little more like 10 to 100. I just recently got an Eryxman Thief, the Slumbering Isle deck, and that was pure 0 to 100. Like, I spent like 40 minutes constructing it, and then like hours testing it with my friend to see um, the plays that I would make before I purchased it. Obviously, you know, it's, it's way helpful to know whether something will work or not, or something is efficient before you purchase the cards. This is expensive, but... Uh, and then I have a dragon deck that I'm finishing with the cards that should be coming in over this next week. So I'd say in total, two and then the ones that I modified are also two. Okay, and going off of like, you know you have your pre-cons that you edited and, you know tweaked a bit. How did you go about um, picking the new cards that you would put in and then how did you take some of those cards out? Uh, I kind of you know, laid them all on the table and weighed the value that they provide me and whether I could get better value out of it. A lot of the creatures I replaced in the decks for like way stronger ones, you know, higher CMCs that'll give me a, a little more of an advantage over my opponents. 
Honestly, I just sit here for an hour with EDH Rec on and look over the cards that would be good and look over what I could replace. It's as simple as that. If if I haven't found much use out of it before or I don't see any uh, play value through it with any strats that I have in my deck already, then it's not worth being in there. So, um, I've been told that you have to build a lot around a win con, uh, and I've been trying to meet those win cons for a while. And that's what led me to revising the I mean I'm not to say that, that the pre-cons are bad, you know. The pre-con that I got was okay. The pre-cons that came out for twenty twenty were great. Alright, the, the 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 mutates and all that stuff, those decks were strong when they came out. Those those were I was kinda sad that I, I ended up getting the twenty nineteen ones instead of those ones. But you know, timing. Timing sucks. <clears throat> but yeah, like uh I'd say EDH Rec has been my greatest asset to my deck building. And uh, my revisions to figure out exactly what I need, and um, then I proceed to move to see how I would use it. Because I, I kind of relate to you, where I was given a pre-con, and I played with the pre-con as it was a few times, and then I watched some videos and read a few things about oh, this particular pre-con. Here's some of the cards that we would take out, and then we would say you should throw in. And so I would do that, and then, you know, I really just started to play around with it, and then eventually I was just like, I'm going to build my own deck now. And Blake, uh, I know that you kind of talked about, you know, you went on to uh, the Gatherer, you were told to find a legendary creature, and you found Una. Yes. But then, like, how did you go about building your first deck? Well, off of that, I'd like to say, like, both Guy and you, Geo, that you started with pre-cons, and I'd like to just say my story, which is the other way of doing it, which is being told, hey, just, like, go on Gatherer, look at all the legendary creatures, all the cards that can be your commander, and find one that speaks to you. And so that's what I did. I just scrolled through for a couple of hours, because I was very slow, and I'm like, what the hell does this do? What the hell does that do? And I eventually came upon Una, Queen of the Fae, and I'm like, that's it. That's the card I love. That's the card I want to build a deck around. And that's how I built a deck. So I didn't have a pre-con. I truly uh, just built a deck from scratch. And <laughs> needless to say, it wasn't that good, uh, that well focused and uh, effective at what it wanted to do. But it, it kind of did. Like, it revolved around an idea. And... That's that's how I got into starting to deck build. I've kind of, from the ground running, always been used to the idea of building your own decks. I'm not trying to say that precons are bad. In fact, I think precons are great. I'm just saying that th that's a different style of getting someone into the game. I think that a lot of new people <clears throat> should start with precon, and I'd say arguably not build their own deck from the jump because starting with precon, those precons are filled with the basic ideas of magic. You know, and how cards interact with each other. So that's like, pre-cons are almost like the training wheels that you need to learn to ride your bike. You know? Um, yeah. I, bas I basically started riding a bike without any training wheels, and I, like, scraped my knees a lot. So... <laughs> you take a lot of falls. <laughs> yeah. I, I learned from it, and I'm like, man, I don't want to scrape my knees anymore. I should really learn how to ride this fucking bike. Yeah. I think that uh, eventually, you know, players should really stick with the pre-cons for too long, you know? So pre-cons are really good at the start, and then once they're confident enough, they can take time to construct their own deck and then proceed to play it, you know, and it's, it's a different feeling when you win with a pre-con versus when you win with your own deck. When you win with a pre-con, it's nice because, you know, you it's a victory nonetheless, but it's a victory that was um, built for you versus a victory that you have built yourself. Yeah, and I would also just to kind of like add on to pre-cons, but you know, you, you may have like a fun time playing with pre-cons and they could like kind of keep up, but if you're also playing with a play group who, you know, tends to just build their own decks, I, I feel like, you know, the pre-cons are only going to get you so far. They're never going to actually get you to a point where you win the game. It's just going to be very casual for you while you play. So that's just kind of my two cents there and i i do agree like you know pre-cons are the training wheels 
I think once you kind of understand all the fundamentals of magic, that's when you can then, you know, take off the training wheels or, you know, um, start throwing in your own cards into the pre-con. And then once you really kind of understand those interactions, you know, build your own deck then. I, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. And, um, you know, if, if <clears throat> to any, any new people that are listening or any people that have new friends, you know, just let them know that um, while the player market can be very uh, scary with the cost of cards, uh, building your own deck can be very difficult. But <clears throat> you have good resources such as a Commander's Quarter that will give you, you know, that's a podcast on YouTube and, and uh, Apple Music and all that stuff. And they give a lot of budget decks. So even, you don't need the, the strongest deck that costs like a thousand bucks with with like all these these huge big boy creatures that'll destroy everyone else's permanents when they come out or or you have annihilator or this this and that right there's a ton of budget cards that you can actually get <clears throat> and still work around a certain strategy or win con to win you don't need the strongest deck at all times so just think about that you know there's always opportunity for you to build a deck whether it is twenty dollars thirty five dollars fifty dollars you know, if you have a little more money and you're more invested, $100 or up. Um, but just do what you feel comfortable with and uh, just don't sit with that pre-con for too long. You, you want to... I say it, it's crucial to your development as a player to eventually build your own deck. To add on to that, I will just say that no matter what power level of EDH you are playing, there are some content creators out there who have made budget decks that you can go watch and learn about. So... There's always resources out there. I would like to ask the next question, which is, if Gio, if you were to start over again, what would you want to do differently to help sort of like ease the transition into magic? <clears throat> if I were to start over again, I would do more research on the possible commanders that I would be able to grab out of the pre-cons, because while I'm okay with Atla, I feel like I could have grabbed a different one that might have been a little better, or I could have worked around a different strat. You know, because at the time, a, the Adler Precon deck doesn't really come with many sack outlets. So you're just sitting there the whole game making eggs over and over and over. Worst comes to worst, your opponent has flyers, and they just totally ignore that. And they swing at you all game, and then your whole strat is just down the toilet. Looking at you, guy. <laughs> huh? What? Huh? What? Me? <laughs> um, but... Yeah, I wish I would have done a little more research on, on what I could have started with and maybe where I'm at right now would be a little different. But beyond that, I wouldn't change much. When I started playing, I used MTG Arena to learn the fundamentals of the game. And I picked that up really quickly because it's a very, you know, it's a very flashy game. I love that about it. And uh, the tutorial was pretty informational and you get a lot of experience on that. Even though they're standard games, you still get the fundamentals that you'll need for EDH. So I didn't really need too many other resources to develop my skills at EDH. If there were one thing I would do differently, which is not particularly related to my development um, as a player and easing my transition, is around the first or second month of my of the time when I started playing, uh, I bought an M20 booster box. And I didn't listen to my friends when they told me buy singles, buy singles, buy singles, buy singles. I wanted to buy a box because there's something <clears throat> that there's this weird thing in me that I like to do where if I'm doing something, if there's an option to do it a traditional way, for some reason I like to do it at least once, right? So you think about old magic before this this huge market was a thing. You buy a pack, you crack it open, you look at what you got. And then, hey, you, if you eventually you go to a game store, eventually if you end up finding somebody that has different cards, you know it's a trading card game. You you work out some trades, stuff like that, right? Yeah. You, and then you have like opening big booster boxes. You get so many cards, and um, a chance of you know you're taking a little bit of a gamble. You get a chance of rares, rare mythics, a bunch of foils. This is that. Now I got the M21. The M21 was kind of butt. All right. I wish. If I had known, if I had done more research or just asked something, in a heartbeat, I would have grabbed Theros for a chance of getting a lot of those indestructible gods. 
that's the one thing I wish I would have done differently. And to this day, I'm still like, can I think about it? It's just so frustrating that I didn't at least um, look up the contents of all the box before I made that spur of the moment decision. So as you become more into this game, like, have you transitioned more towards buying singles and less the risk of buying boosters and boxes? Yeah, um, as it stands, I, I only buy singles. I'm <clears throat> a little more strict on myself with that. I'd say off that first box that I bought, I, I do have a lot of little little minions, you know, little pack filler minions that would, you know, probably do something in standard. If I played standard, I might be able to work something with them with with the little what little uh, power and toughness that they had, the little effects. But as it stands, I have no more need for any of any of those uh, excessive amounts of cars. Number one, I don't have the space. Number two, I just don't want to go through that experience again. Um, I'd much rather spend most of my money that I've been spending. Uh, God, I, I've spent so much money already, and it's only been eight months. But I'd rather spend all this money on <laughs> Welcome these... to the club. Woo woo. <laughs> Man. I'd rather spend all this money on these singles that'll uh, get me a little farther than buying boxes. If they were to release a full set of rares, which, you know, is, is inconceivable, <clears throat> you know, but if they were to, so you know how they're, do, they're doing double masks and they're doubling the rares. Yeah, yeah. If they, and, and Chance of Rare Mythics. If they came out with a box that was just uncommons and rares, I might consider buying that. But the value on that, depending on what the contents of the box would be, might be a little bit absurd. So... I'd say that would make me consider buying a box again, but beyond that, there's not really much that gets me going. I thought about buying Double Masters, but um, I quickly realized that it's not the move. Yeah, I know, just to like draw more comparisons to Yu-Gi-Oh!, they do stuff in that game where they like make smaller packs and will have it like be like five rare cards and that's it. But in Magic, you know, that. They tend to like cater their packs to always be draftable, so it would be kind of hard for them to like just make a full rare set. And you know, the, there's also other formats that are dependent on what rarity you can use, so it gets a little tricky there. But hopefully, they just continue what they've been doing this year and is just recognize what cards need reprinted and we'll just reprint them so that they do become an affordable price. Blake, do you have any additional thoughts before we move on to our next section? Yeah, if you start to get into magic, just buy singles. It is a much more efficient use of your money. Also, if you plan to like be playing this game and say, five years or more, I would really advise you to start investing in mana sources, such as the best mana rocks, the best mana dorks, the best lands. I, I think that is one thing I wish I had done, and I, I did to some extent, but once you have those, you can like literally build almost any deck in the commander format. And so, like, mana sources are just one of the key parts of Magic the Gathering next to card advantage, but there are so many different and varied forms of card advantage that depend on the decks that you build that I didn't want to start with that. I wanted to start with the mana sources because no matter what archetype you're doing, no matter what deck idea you're doing, a lot of them use almost the same mana sources, the same lands, the same mana dorks, the same mana rocks. So if you plan to be playing that long for this game, I recommend that. I'm not, take that with a grain of salt, but that's what I'd say. All right. And I mean, I agree, you know, they're, they're the one type of card that'll go, well, all types of cards go in every deck, but they're one, they're the ones that are most interchangeable throughout each deck. So yeah, they're pretty important. I almost wish that there were mana rocks for each color to really help with a lot of the ramp problems, you know? So 
I mean, each each color gets signets. Yeah, but signets only go so far. I'm talking about like, you know how we have these have the elves that that'll tap for a mana. They need to come out with the, with a little baby demon that'll tap for a black mana, or uh, you know, a, a little you're talking a about, young angel. You're talking about color for a bends. Man, I, I don't know. The, that sounds more like color breaks to me. Because <laughs> green, yeah, I definitely see like you know. Green does have access to those kind of things, but where it has access to those things, it lacks in other things. So it seems balanced. In at least EDH, I guess, it does kind of suck for some, like, white, especially. Just because white was kind of created with the one-on-one format in mind. So a lot of its strengths don't translate well to EDH, but, you know... Hopefully, we're, those, we're not going to we're not going to descend into this conversation. Not we haven't had enough to drink yet. <laughs> all right, but all right. So, bringing new people in. Uh, so, Geo, how did Fabian get you to play Magic? Did he say anything specific that like caught your attention and made you interested? I'll tell you exactly what happened, word for word. He just we're on Discord and he says, "Hey, Geo." We play a card game called Magic every Thursday. It's not that hard. You know, it's really easy to learn. You can learn through the MTG Arena app, which will teach you the basics of how to play. He said it's not that hard? Yeah, he said it's not that hard. He said, uh, we need one to fill in as a fourth. Do you want to come? And then that's it. I said, you know what? Sure, why not? And that's been going on at the time. I was unemployed because I was just about to start school. And I definitely welcomed the hobby that uh, very soon became my obsession. Uh, and yeah, the, that next Thursday, I ended up going to Target the day before, grabbing the Atla deck, and then the next Thursday, I went to his house, and there, there I met you, guy, and then we played our first game. It was as simple as that. I was very open to to learning this game, even though there was in the back of my mind some, you know, some little little voice up talking about the the typical stigma. Oh, nerd game, nerd game, blah blah blah. <laughs> it's not a nerd game. Come on. It's 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 a fantastic strategy game. It's an open world. It's it's so much more than that. So I'm so glad I gave it a try, and uh, never turn it back. Did you find learning through MTG Arena initially to be a good way of learning how to play? And then what was your perspective of when it shifted from one v one to one v three? MTG Arena was the greatest tool that I've used to learn how to play. I'd recommend any new player playing MTG Arena a lot. You know, go through, you use the decks they give you on there. They have pre-constructed decks as well. Those give you the basics. Then you can make your own decks. If, if any of you have played Hearthstone or anything like that, it's just the same way. You can craft cards, you can do all this stuff. Make your own decks, play with them. Although it is standard, you do learn a ton. And when I started playing EDH, after learning through MTG Arena for the 1v1 format, my my tracking of players really had to open up. You know, I had to. It was so difficult at at first because instead of looking at one person's board, I had to look at guy's board. I had to look at Fabian's board. I had to look at the other person's board. And there's so many cards that will enter the battlefield that I just number one I didn't know about. Number two, I had to consistently read over and over to remember the effects in case I played something that interacted with that. It was very tough, very challenging, but with experience, it gets way easier. So at the start, it's a, it's a bumpy road, you know, but um, very worth it in the end once you learn it, like start becoming more intermediate at playing. And I mean, I know part of your answer will be, you know, your playgroup was some of the coolest guys you've ever met. But what else about Magic has been able to keep you coming back where Pokemon kind of failed you? Ooh, that is a good question. I'd say, number one, the discovery of new cards. Because I see something that I I think would be interesting and fun, and, and I like, you know, like, for example, one of the newer commanders out of the more recent sets is Rin and Seri. You create 
create a bunch of dog and cat tokens, and then you basically ping everyone for damage for them. And that, to me, is a bit of a meme, but it sounds fun, right? So the more <clears throat> fun that cards sound, the more I am enticed to keep playing for the chance that maybe one day I'll jump into that and I'll use it. it it's all about the, the fun value for me. If, if I feel like I'm getting a ton out of it and, and we're having a lot of replayability, then I will, I will stick with it wholeheartedly as I have. And number two, it would be the, the vibe that I get playing Magic. You know, Magic is more than just a card game. It's, it's an excuse, almost, for you to get your friends together, you chill out, you have a beer, to play some Magic, right? So, it really helps you develop these relationships, these bonds with people. Some that you may not know, some that you may know or be close with. And uh, keep a consistent culture of getting together, playing, and then having these funny moments... Uh, maybe these angry moments, you know, whatever it may be, but that really has kept me playing through and through. And um, I have even partnered with my friend Fabian to get somebody else to join us in playing, and then he was a new player. And then in him, I saw myself, everything that I went through, and now he's at a point where he doesn't even have to ask questions. He just plays like me, and then we play together, all four of us, and we have a great time. And it's stuff like that. So you're telling me you've only been playing eight months. You've gotten somebody else into the game, and you're already like, ah, oh, I remember when I was like that. <laughs> hell yeah, hell yeah, a, man! It's it's crazy how how far we've come. It, it's crazy how far to to look back. Like I, I I can imagine you guys. If you guys look back at at early Magic guy, early Magic Blake, you know, what what would you think right now? I'd slap them. They're noobs. <laughs> <laughs> I'd slap Blake. Sorry, I, oh. I'd slap early Blake. Oh, I wouldn't wow. slap early guy. That's me. <laughs> but like, it's just crazy to, to think how much we progress, right? Yes, 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 yes. Um, but yeah, that has definitely kept me in, and um, and at this point, I spent so much money that I don't think I'll be going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, that is kind of the nice thing is, at least for me, the thing is like, you know, I am spending a lot of this money, so I do want to be invested in the game, but I'm also trying to be smart about it and like buy the cards that I know will retain their value. It's like a lot of the reserve list cards that I'm looking at, like, you know, if I buy it now, it's going to be cheaper now than in like two years when, you know, the price will inevitably go up a little bit. And when I'm done with the game, I can then sell those cards and, you know, keep a majority of my money. Like bonds or stocks or whatever. And, okay. So then the last thing before we kind of conclude is, uh, what was one of the more helpful things your playgroup did to help you get to understand how to play the game? Um, <clears throat> so as I referenced earlier with the with the triggers, where if I missed one, they would go, they would backtrack um, real quick. Let me do it. Let me uh, play it out. Stuff like that. That was probably the most helpful thing. Was they didn't just let it pass, right? They, they for the sake of of smashing me or, or doing whatever. They um, if I made a misplay, they'd walk me through why I did it incorrectly and what would have been a better decision. Um, no one got mad at me for doing something dumb. No one uh, absolutely blew me up because I was new in the group. They gave me time to learn, right? Like I said, I was playing Atlas. I was making eggs all game. That's all, literally all I was doing. Uh, I wasn't hurting nobody. I wasn't doing nothing. And they would just let me do it. And if I had another follow-up, they, they would show me how to do it, show me the timing about it. And it's really like, back to the bike analogy. The pre-con deck was training wheels. And my play group was 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 the parent holding their hand on my back to push me forward, right? Trying to prevent me from falling or doing all this dumb stuff. So that was very helpful. I'm very grateful for that. You know, you two guy, every everything that you did at that time to, to walk me through the right things to do and, and when to do them. Um, I'm very appreciative. And as, for as long as I play Magic, you know, that original play group will have a special place in my heart. Blake, do you have anything that you want to add on? to, you know, how your playgroup 
your initial playgroup kind of got you to teach or teach you magic and how to understand how to play? Yeah, it's basically the exact same thing that you just said, uh, Gio, which is my playgroup of friends was very patient with me. And like, for example, coming from Yu-Gi-Oh, I was like, all right, slam down this creature, go to combat, swing in. And they're like, it doesn't have haste. I'm like, ah, fuck. And then they're also like, it, it has to tap. You can't then use it as a blocker for your next turn. And I'm like, double fuck. And so I did that, like, I, I kid you not, like six turns in a row. And I'm just like, ah, I'm so bad at this game. But like, they were patient enough with me and they didn't give me too much shit. They gave me shit, but they didn't give me too much shit. And like, you know, I eventually learned after multiple games. The one other thing I want to add to this is the fact that Mark Rosewater, the like lead designer of Magic the Gathering at this time, says that you shouldn't overload new players with info and rules. Just teach them the very minimum basics. And as problems come up, then tell them things, but try and keep it as simple as possible. And to like, like the recommendation is to kind of like, as you're teaching someone, pull your punches so that they likely will win their first few games so that they get that fun and positive experience so that in the long run, like, okay, yeah, in the long run, you can start being like, oh, this is how this actually works. And yeah, maybe beat them. But like, you got to have that first positive set of experiences to get them into the game. Because if you just like absolutely crush them and demolish them with like your really tuned deck, it's like, dude, what's the fucking point? Like, you're not going to have... They're not gonna have a fun time, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little jealous, cause like, I kinda realize now that, you know, Blake, you had a playgroup, and Geo, you had me and Fabian and Jesse, but I didn't really have like a playgroup per se. I had Blake who I would talk on the phone with and he would explain things to me. And I also had Ethan who was getting into the game with me at the same time. It was just me and him, so it wasn't like, you know, we had a designated night every week where we were able to play. Uh, we would kind of have to go out of our way to, you know, continue playing, which I think made it difficult for me at the start. So, Guy, from what I remember from my perspective, it's like, you know, I got you this pre-con, it got you interested. And like, but you didn't really have anyone to play with. So you were really hanging on by like a thread. And then one day you decided to go to a local game store and you just happened to get really lucky where you found people that you really liked. And then you started playing with them consistently. And that's what really got you into the game. Well, at that point, that was when I moved to San Francisco and I was able to like find Jesse, Fabian and Hector. Um, and that's like, a year and a half to two years of playing the game at that point so yeah hanging on by a thread but like there were like months at a time where it was kind of hard for me to just play a game um i didn't try and use some of the resources that geos mentioned like untapping or you know having a mac i can't even really well now i can but at the time i couldn't play like arena uh to even like play any games of magic so it was kind of actually difficult for me. And like now even I'm kind of back in the same position being in Los Angeles and in a pandemic, having to stay home. I don't have too many ways of playing the game unless if I want to like hop in onto untappin. So yeah, not sure where I was going with all this, but I was just kind of like, you know, painting a different picture of like, you know, my perspective, you started I guess. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How you started out and how, how it differed from having, like, a and stuff. Well, I mean, I definitely think that, um, I mean, I'm not really too familiar with, uh, with game store culture. I've never really went. You know, I jumped straight into a playgroup. But from what Fabian has told me that, you know, you guys met at a, at a game store and then you ended up joining the playgroup, I'm sure that there's going to be, I mean, hopefully, knock on wood, when, if sometime this year, and we transitioned to more uh, downhill slope with COVID cases and then the pandemic, then maybe we can 
you can probably, you know, down there find a new playgroup or something, something of the sort. But you know, we're always there for you uh, on uh, Untapped In. So YouTube, Blake, if you, if you ever want to play, I mean, you know, we'll jump straight into Untapped and and then I'll whoop you a little bit. But uh, <laughs> oh, those are fine words. All right, <laughs> I'll I mean, teach Blake to... how to use Untapped In here soon, so he can yeah. play some games with us. Not to brag, but I did get a pretty mean expropriate off last night, so uh, you know, kind of riding that win. But yeah, like um, for any new player too, if you need, if you need to play group or you know if, if you're interested, but you're on you're on the fence because you don't have a play group, by all means, like once everything opens up eventually, you know, go out there, put yourself out there, go to game stores, play a couple games or two. You might meet somebody that you end up taking a liking to, and then you know from then on it might be history. All right, all right. So closing thoughts. Geo, uh, what's your hot ones take that you want to kind of tell the other new players of Magic the Gathering? My message is to, <clears throat> if you are hesitant to get into Magic the Gathering, whether it's Standard or uh, Commander, EDH, use your resources to your full advantage. You know, you're not just just walking down, you're not just walking through a forest by yourself with, with, no, with no, you know, torch or light or whatever it may be, right? You have EVH rec, which gives you tons of good deck building and strategy for commanders. You have websites such as untapped.in that present you with the platform to actually test those decks before you purchase them in paper so that you can get experience with it. And at its core, you know, Magic is a social game. You use it as an opportunity to uh, get some friends together, uh, hang out, just have a good time aside from the magic, you know. And then in the magic, you have tons of funny moments. Uh, angry moments, tears, laughs, you know, and and it it's it's a world full of opportunity, I'd say, and it's up to you on whether you want to take up that opportunity. Uh, but if you do, I guarantee you won't regret it. You won't regret it back. I like that sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. We are the Wizard Staff. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else that you listen to your podcast. On YouTube, make sure to hit the like and subscribe button. Helps out a bunch. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WizardStaff101. Or you can send us an email at thewizardstaff101 at gmail.com if you want to bitch and complain about how stupid we are. So thank you very much for listening, and thank you again, Gio, for coming on tonight. And we hope you have a great evening. Thank y'all for having me. Peace. Peace.